Welcome to the Idle Book Club. I'm Sean Vanneman. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. And we're here to talk to you about three books. Normally we talk to you about one book, but today, three. We consider well, this like our summer reads this yeah, We episode. should explain why this is happening. It's our summer reads because uh, Wolf Hall w- uh, might have destroyed us slightly. The, w- the Widowmaker. Uh, Wolf Hall, the... the complexity of the character narrative of wolf hall oh, arc that? intersected perfectly with life shit arc and created a uh, a spot where that book didn't get finished yet so we didn't want to leave the uh, the cast months and months and months with nothing so we, just months and months exactly <laughs> so we each wanted to grab a book that we really really like for some reason or another or and, are reading right now or are reading right now you finished. We're all finished. Oh, yeah. yeah. Books yeah. that we love. Uh, well, I mean, the book that I, I mean, or books I that we've that, read. Yeah, I just I read a book that's fucking. There's sort of like three distinctly different recommendations, though. I think mm-hmm. they're very different. Yeah, um, One of them is stupid. Find out which. We should, I think we should still explain what we're actually doing with the podcast schedule first. So we're um, we're uh, going to actually switch the order of our next two books. So uh, today we're just you know we're talking about some books we've read recently, and then. On the next podcast, we're going to talk about uh, The Sun Also Rises by Hemingway, which we were going to talk about after Wolf Hall. Um, and then we're going to do Wolf Hall after that. So um, Sean had the the idea that uh, Sun Also Rises is kind of a bit of a more approachable kind of summer read situation. And then um, we will try to retackle Wolf Hall later. So for this or month, next. the month of July, we're going to talk about some random books for August. The sun also rises, and for September, Wolf Hall. Thanks for listening, everyone. Wait, is that like your goodbye? Is that your sign off? I'm out. <laughs> you weren't even going to talk about. Yours? No, let's talk about books. I want to talk about yours last. It's fine because I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fine. Uh, so who wants to go? Chris. Chris, it's your day. You look like you're just budding with information Am about I? your book, <laughs> swollen with it. Some yeah. may say. Um, so, uh, this week I read, uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold by Jean Le Carre. I had only read one Le Carre novel before this. It was Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which I think we might've talked about yeah. a little bit. On Extensively. The Whenever we do a, uh, a sort of multi-book episode, at least one Le Carre George Smiley story must appear apparently. Only twice so far. Three times will make a trend. Yes. Do this next he time. will appear. Yeah. <laughs> if you say George Smiley's name three times, he appears on your book club podcast. Yes. And somehow gets everybody in your life to turn against you. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is act- this book is billed as a George Smiley novel, but it it really only features George Smiley as. I, I mean, I assume that's the case because of the recent Tinker Tailor film and and so on. But it it really only features Smiley in a in a essentially a cameo role, an a, an important role, but but a very small one. Um, and I was glad that that's the case because I'm not generally a really big into series like series of, of books um and this reading this really reminded me why actually that was one of my biggest takeaways so this was i think le carré's third novel and uh but it was his first to like blow was, up right it was his first really huge success that put him on the literary map that made him quit spying actually yeah right exactly he had been writing under that pseudonym i can't even remember his real name but 
He'd been writing under the pseudonym John le Carre for, for years while he worked in the British um, intelligence service. Um, but this book was so successful that it made it impossible for him to continue doing that. So uh, he left and uh, began writing novels full time and obviously had a huge, uh, very successful career. But this novel is, it was striking to me reading it after having read Tinker Tailor a couple years ago. Uh, because Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a book that is extraordinarily dense, incredibly information heavy, um, very much about ambiguity and uh, the subtleties of deduction um, and to some degree sort of intuiting of human nature a little bit. But The Spy That Came from, came In From the Cold, it's a much shorter novel. It's a much easier read. Um, uh, and it is much angrier. It's a much more cynical novel. It's a, it's really about, um, it's, it's almost nihilistic. Whereas I think that theme runs through Tinker Taylor as well, but there's something that's very resigned about Tinker Taylor. And I think that has a lot to do with its care with probably John le Carre being an older person when he wrote it, but also with George Smiley being such a, um, fully controlled, um, sort of unflappable character. Uh, the principal character in the spy coming from the cold, Alec Limas is he's an actual operational. Uh, he's an, he's an operative George Smiley, the, you know, principal protagonist of Tinker, Tinker Taylor. He's an analyst. He's one of the guys who stays back at the circus, which is what they call their, uh, intelligence, uh, headquarters in London. Um, Limas in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is one of the guys who actually carries out sort of the dirty work, so to speak. Um, he's actually out there doing operations, which is interesting because that makes this novel much more of a traditional espionage thing. He's actually going to another country. He's participating in a complex operation that requires um, a lot of uh, very upfront duplicity. Um, but what was what's the thing that is that is not different is how sort of unsexy it all is you know it's it's so far from bond i, I think when this novel came out it was referred to kind of as the anti-bond and that was a big it was a really big um uh statement in fiction to write these novels that were that were very cynical about the cold war or, or rather about uh the west's participation in the cold war as opposed to um, it's very sympathetic portrayals you see in Ian Fleming and, and things like that, where it's sort of taken for granted that the West is in the right and is justified in what it does and, and so on. Um, Le Carre definitely portrays that struggle as one that is um, the, the difference between the two sides is, is almost immaterial when it comes to the actual execution of the intelligence work and the espionage. Um, and the spy who came in from the cold is much angry is much more actively angry about that than uh, Tinker Taylor is. And I wonder if some of that comes Would you say that is just in the execution of the writing or in the actual, like the things that happen in the book? Um, like, does he, the writing is certainly uh, terser. I mean, it's definitely, as I say, like more approachable prose, but a lot of it is just the brutality of the way the plot unfolds Mm -hmm. is really, um, it's very shocking. You can, you, there's a certain point at the book in, in the book into it where you can kind of intuit what's going to happen in this plot, which is a very, in a lot of ways, it's a very 
um, kind of classical espionage plot where there's double agents and twists and turns and so on. Um, but it is so there, – there is nothing about it that is aspirational or um, anything you'd ever want to take part in as kind of a swashbuckling adventure. You know, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm talking around this a lot because it's not, you know, it's, it's not a book that we decided to talk about, so I don't want to spoil a bunch of things. Um, but the, the way the story unfolds is, is, um, extraordinarily damning to pretty much all involved. It's essentially passing very stern judgment on. Can you give an example? I mean, I know that it's talking about the content of the book. Right. So, I mean, the, 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 the side, I mean. In a general sense, it's that the two sides, the, the uh, Cambridge Circus, the headquarters of British intelligence, and Moscow Center, the headquarters of Soviet intelligence, they use their agents so uh, so fully as pawns without any regard for uh, their individual humanity. It is, it is in, in this novel that the way that their superiors um, look beyond the um, any kind of moral considerations dealing with these operatives as people uh, and just place them in situations where they will be willingly um, in the dark or not uh, willfully sort of um, ignorant of what they're, they'll be told one thing. This is what you have to go do. That, that is not remotely the case. And, and, and when they find out it's always, it's always really um, quite disastrous for the person in question but not for the agency that's directing it um and it the there's a lot of talk in the novel about there's a lot of cynical talk about how um communism is so concerned with the good of the many at the expense often of the few and there are characters who um you know discuss that in in ways that are uh, in some cases um, enthusiastic, and in some cases uh, resigned, and in some cases hostile. But the I think the point John le Carre makes is that that is in fact exactly how Western intelligence, uh, Western powers during the Cold War operated, whether or not it was their stated philosophical intention. Um, there's actually a line I think in Tinker Taylor where um, the character Bill Hayden says something to the effect of. Uh, the only true measure of a of a nation's character is the uh, is its intelligence service. By which he means it doesn't matter what you say publicly, what you what your politicians espouse. It only really matters how you operate when no one knows what you're doing. You know, when you're operating with this secret branch, because that's the that's the thing that actually represents what you're willing to do in reality, not just what you're willing to claim that you're that you're willing to do. Um, it it was an interesting book. Oh, the thing I wanted to say about series, I reading this book reminded me that Le Carre actually has this whole kind of mythos with George Smiley and with the circus, which is the sort of alternate version, you know, as I say, of British intelligence that he set up. Um, and it was strange for me to realize that because I, when I read Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, I didn't know anything about Le Carre's work in, in anything more than a general sense. And I was really fascinated by the way that book just drops you into this sort of swirling miasma of information and characters and really only gives you the barest you need to stay abreast 
of what's going on. And in some, in some cases, not even that. And I thought that was really interesting. And I thought I loved it. I, I, I thought it was, uh, Jake, I don't know. Did you read other literary before you read that? No, the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was the first thing that I read. Uh, that at least it relates to that stuff. I'd read some other book of my dad's like uh-huh. 15 years ago that was a completely disconnected okay. thing. But. I'll, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this then. So I um, I really enjoyed that. I, th- I thought it really spoke to the theme of ambiguity that really connected with me about that work. Mm-hmm. And um, it was interesting reading Spy Came In From The Cold because I remembered, oh, right, Smiley is this character that existed. And if I'd been reading all of these books and then I read Tinker Tailor, it would be a lot less of a kind of um I, I think a lot a lot less of the effect that i really appreciated would have been present and of just that like a jargon assault that happens in that book yeah and and the just sheer volume of information and characters and, and so on um and i i i feel like i'm probably not going to read any other lucare after this even though both novels of his his i've read have been completely excellent i mean i i would recommend them both highly um so much of what his work is about to me is sort of misinformation and, and uh, not having all the pieces. And I kind of, I liked the feeling of, of going into um, that novel almost at a C, you know, just without any context at all. And I feel like I would hit diminishing returns if I kept reading more of his and sort of treated it as this like serial procedural. I think that's the case. And I think this might've been something we talked about when we talked about Tinker Taylor soldier spy, but I think that John le Carre himself ran into that as well. Like he, cause there's really, there's really only three books that are sort of considered the George Smiley books out of all these. I've read a little bit about this. I, it, it was in one of the editions that I had and it's uh Tinker Taylor soldier spy, the follow up to that, which is called the honorable Schoolboy, which isn't really about George Smiley. It's about an operative in Hong Kong mm-hmm. uh, and Singapore. And then the third book in that series is called Smiley's people. And that's the one where he actually, encounters Carla, the character who shows up mm-hmm. in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. But um Le Carre had said Smiley shut up around the spy who came in from the cold and then he was the main character in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and he at that point was like, Oh, George Smiley is just gonna be like my vessel to say all the things that I've wanted to say right. about the Cold War and the intelligence community. And it was like halfway through the honorable schoolboy, the second one that he was like, "Ugh, I should just be writing the story about this other guy and I should not have any of the George Smiley stuff in it at all. Well, okay, I guess this is, I'm doing it. Right. And then I think he didn't really come back to it for a while. And then finally was like, people are going to want me to end this. So then he wrote the third George Smiley book, but he like took one step deliberately in that direction. I think after Tinker Taylor soldier spy and then immediately divorced himself from it. So hmm, I, 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 that, that makes sense. Yeah. I under, I understand that the same way. Like I, I don't know. I read that whole series and it was frustrating to get to the third one, which had some just really potent and pretty, pretty sweet, just like good moments that were the same reason that I like a lot of this other guy's stuff. But George Smiley as a character and this world as a sort of construct in and of itself had even just within that sort of like two and a half stories of doing it built up enough sort of weird cruft and lore that it was frustrating in a way that, that, yeah, that they that it wasn't as an isolated incident. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. I like I think that. I think the people who are the people who did the recent Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy movie are doing a follow up one, but they're just folding all of it together into they're it's folding all the rest of the George Smiley stuff together into one movie instead of trying to split it up because I think that same reason it just 
everyone involved realized this is a bad idea to just keep carrying this on as a sort of lore thing and just yeah, no, that makes sense. Lucare, I think most of his stuff after that has just been one-off stories that he's wanted to write and not trying to build on like a Tom Clancy style thing. Man, speaking of that movie, I uh, was thinking about it a lot recently because I'm always thinking about that, that movie because I enjoyed it so much. And I watched over the last week or so, I watched the original BBC series, mm-hmm. of the miniseries Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. The Alec Guinness one? Yeah. Uh, it was really good. It definitely didn't speak to me in the same way the film did. The film is actually still my favorite. Even though I read the book first, the film is actually my favorite um, treatment of that material. But what I, what I realized as I was watching the BBC one is that I think about that story so much at this point, and I've seen so many versions of it. And I just bought yesterday um, BBC radio, adapted radio drama of it. So we're now in the realm of just, this is just Chris Ramos, Tinker Tailor, Soldier yeah, Spy. Yeah, it's like, well, it's taken on the status of sort of a weird folktale or something for me. You know, where it's like this, I just know all the characters. I know it's, There's nothing about it that can be Come surprising. Come here, the tale of George Smiley. Right, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing about it that can be surprising from a plot standpoint anymore, but I... I for some reason, I'm so drawn to the core of the thing. It's very odd. <laughs> weird. Yeah. It's very weird, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I've had that experience with anything before. It's, it's strange. When you've done your own, like, musical interpretation of Tinker Tailor Soldier right. Spy, when you've, when you've, you know. Operetta. Yeah. yeah. Or just, you know, a full symphony inspired by the. <laughs> the right. Yeah. Then you'll be institutionalized. Yeah, it's accurate. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Good. Been quiet. Just listen in. How are you? I was trying to. You I realized at one point the ball was going to be passed to me, and then I wasn't didn't know what I was going to talk about. Yeah. So I needed to remember. Fair enough. I'm somewhere in the middle of remembering and not remembering. Yeah. Yeah. Another song that you should write. <laughs> in the middle of remembering and not remembering. Yes. Yeah. But uh, so we. You don't like this as much as you like Tinker Taylor, though. Um. I don't know if I would say that. I think it's a. I think it's probably actually a better novel in a lot of ways. I mean, Tinker Taylor is so huge and so um, procedural and so um, uh, uh, dense that I don't know if it's necessarily a better work of literature. Um, but there was something about it. There's something about that density that sort of connected with it with its themes in a way that really spoke to me. Um, the Spy Came In From The Cold, I think, is a, is a really tight, really excellent work of fiction. It's, it probably is the better novel. Um, but yeah, I don't. in terms of which one I personally liked more, I, I, it's tough to say, uh, partly because of what I was saying before about so much of my enjoyment of the, of the, latter being, of the you know, later novel. Um, but if you were going to recommend one? If I was going to recommend one, I would probably actually recommend The Spy Came In From The Cold. Mm-hmm. That, that is, I think, sort of the definitive... Um, Le Carre novel in a lot of ways, as I understand it. I'm not, I, I haven't, I've only read yeah. this too, but mm-hmm. I, that seems to be the one that he's most often associated That's with. That's really tough for me because the enjoyment of just, if someone is willing and able to do it and enjoys it, diving in headfirst into the just weird morass of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is an experience that you would never have if you read The Spy Who Came it's, In From The Cold it's first. It's true. But if you want to just get a dose of what this guy is about, it seems yeah. like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is the, is the sort of cleaner cell for you mm-hmm. okay man speaking of speaking of uh you were saying your dad had a lecare book or something when you yeah were, oh yeah. my dad loved all this stuff in the 70s like i still uh-huh. have a lot of his paperbacks of them which is fun oh that's awesome because yeah. i my my only um related experience with that when i was a kid uh, at our grandparents house 
in New York, um, my grandfather had a copy of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy that was on his in his bookshelf with all just his old like he was Italian. A lot of his books were Italian and all these books that were very um, inaccessible to me, mm-hmm. you know, because they were either literally in a different language or um, just had that feeling of being adult, like books right. for adults, you know. And I remember seeing Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and I never actually took it off the shelf, but it's it's actually the edition that I have now, which is the first edition hardbound with sort of the imitation Cyrillic text, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, um, typeface for the, for the title. And I remember seeing it and just finding the title fascinating. And just as, as a kid? Yeah. And I, I, at the time, I assumed it was about a guy who was like, sort of a chameleon, you know, who could be a tinker or a tailor or a soldier, but actually he was really a spy, but he could pose as the, all these characters. And I remember the, just the colors of the book and the way that the, the, and the, the, the usage of words like tinker and tailor, which to me were very archaic words. They weren't words that I would ever hear in my life on a daily basis. Um, just as, a, as a kid, um, it may, it weirdly communicated to me, I think in a in a just very suggest softly suggested way, the actual world that um, those books are set in, mm-hmm. um, because I'd see I'd seen a bunch of James Bond movies at the time, and they were like very glitzy and, and glamorous. I remember I can't remember which one it was, but the one that always stuck in my mind as a kid was the one where he's swimming to a submarine underwater. I don't even I don't I think that's Thunderball. That Thunderball, yeah. And, is that the one? Wait, is that the one? I think it's in the Bahamas. Yeah, I can't I can't remember much about mm-hmm. it, but that was like as a kid to me, like the canonical James Bond scene for some right. reason, because I just saw it like at that age where things get burned into your mind. Um, mm-hmm. Only very specific things, apparently, because I don't remember anything else about it. Um, but I remember seeing that book in my grandfather's library and uh, sort of just intuiting that it was like a very different thing and being very fascinated by it, but also like intimidated by it for some reason, because it was a large book and was had very drab colors and didn't have anything like a picture or anything. Right. That's the sort of book that you look at as a kid and like, when I'm an adult, this might be a cool spy book. Right. Right. And I, and it's funny. And I, I didn't remember that until, until relatively recently actually. And it's funny to think about that now for me to think about how, um, how much I've enjoyed that, that particular novel and especially the film based on it and the themes that it deals with in a lot of ways being themes that as a child, I had some really hazy intuition of, but obviously no meaningful understanding or, or you know, comprehension of any kind. Um, just one of those weird connected dots things in my brain. I was thinking about while I was reading this this other novel. Hmm. Yeah. I, like I was going to seg that into David Foster Wallace's Please do. Consider the Lobster. You've done it. Because I feel as if he does that all the time, but to just an obscene degree. Okay. Explain that. Yes. Um, So Consider the Lobster is one of David Foster Wallace's collection of essays, and it was sort of a revelation to read this book when I read it. Um, Not too long ago, actually, but it was as if I had forgotten. I I read this book last year for the first time. Yeah. Um, It was like I had forgotten that there was sort of a, a... level of depth and complexity and personalization that can happen in writing that I think translates just to like really sincere honesty that doesn't really exist in a lot of writing. And 
David Foster Wallace is able to experience a thing either as a correspondent or as a reviewer that allows this sort of like two-way mirror to present itself into how he experienced the thing itself, whether it's an event or an interview or whatever, and the thing itself. And there's some sort of like greater truth that is end ends up being revealed about I think both the inter like the subject and the experience and, and he experiencing it that is really 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 unbelievable and I get really wistful when I think about it and I like read chunks of this book because uh, he took his own life and it really bums me out yeah, <laughs> that he doesn't really exist sad. anymore. Yeah. Um, and that's so funny. I don't. I, we don't live in a time where I don't. I. You hear about every single time somebody of notoriety dies, you just hear about it instantly on right. Twitter or whatever. Right. So you get kind of used to it. And I don't know. I think there's, I think we have an interesting relationship now publicly with figures who pass, but somehow there's a couple and Foster Wallace is one of them that's outside of that sort of digestive mechanism. That actually hits me with authors that speak to me more than any other sort of noted person who ends yeah. up passing. Which, but I don't know what that is. It sounds really cheesy and really like it does not mean to undercut. I hate to compare the two, but the I saw the Dark Knight in a, like a 10 a.m. show the day it came out, and then like went to a went to have lunch with my girlfriend at the time, and was just wrecked because I what I had seen Heath Ledger do in that movie I had never quite seen from that. I've been a big Batman fan my whole life, and nobody had ever just done that what he did in that movie. And I was so, so, so like just upset about it in a way that that was sort of like just like a punch. And then I got over it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when I read Foster Wallace's work, it's more sort of uh, just general ennui. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I think his ability, he has sort of, it's a great book. I mean, you, you have to read this. If you like nonfiction essays and you can handle a lot of words all in one place, <laughs> then this is, it's funny because it's the same amount of pages as the regular book, but this feels like it's got like a thousand more words in it. <laughs> this feels like it has way more words. In I it. didn't feel that way because really, I just I know because yeah, my density one, of would, ideas, my brain would when I would finish an an essay mm. in that collection, you know, my brain would kind of like okay, I've done, finished something. Yeah, and that, that it, it does have that, but you know, I think like when you're reading, so he has I think it's like nine essays in here: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um. Some of them are short, like six pages on Kafka. Uh, there's like nine pages on, um, I don't even know what that one's about, actually, looking at it over again. Uh, there's a few pages on this tennis star, but then there's some really like hefty, like really just, I don't know how to describe like expansive uh, chunks of criticism and just sort of reporting done. One on the like adult video industry awards in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. One on um, being a like a uh, campaign reporter in the two thousand election with John McCain. With John McCain. Yeah. Um, one about a uh, radio, a talk radio host, an AM talk radio host, and then a bunch of like smaller ones. Uh, one the um, uh, title. Uh, chapter consider the lobster is about going to a lobster fest and just sort of experiencing the celebratory eating of these creatures that are killed in such a bizarre way um they're all really great and none of them have 
a level of cliche to them. It's a, like when Foster Wallace talks about, should we really be eating lobsters? Because this is like what they have to go through when you eat them. That's a very sort of like people have had that conversation. Right. And There's a version of that. That's very tired. Yes. But when he engages that question, it's not at all. And I don't know if it's because he does it so personally and with so much consideration to like all angles of it, but it is illuminating by the time you're finished in a way that just a simple conversation of, you know, you really should need a lobster because you can feel pain while it's dying um, is not the same. Um, but I think like, I don't know. It's hard to pick one of these. It's the most impressive. I do think up Simba is probably the most like just that's McCain. That's yeah, the McCain yeah. uh, chapter is the most sort of ambitious. I it think. Is, yeah, definitely the most ambitious. Yeah. It, cause partially cause it's something that everybody, pretty much anyone who pays any attention to anything in this country deals with the, the things that he tackles in that. Right. I mean, it's like, you can't, the, you can't avoid, um, kind of being implicated at some point in what he's writing about there because right. you're either in all likelihood, you know, as if you're someone who has any investment in politics, you're probably either someone who. Um, supported John McCain or didn't support John McCain. Uh, you have an opinion about the right, man. exactly. Yeah. And the way that the way that to me that he he set up the complex the complexity of John McCain the man versus John McCain the candidate, you know, mm-hmm. versus John McCain the campaign, um, and kind of bringing to light the extremely um, intricate relationship and differences between those. Um, it makes it much harder to have just one overriding opinion about all three of them at the same time. Yeah, it absolutely sort of deletes your ability to just check a box, even yeah. though that is exactly what voting is. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. it's which is sort of impressive. Um, in this one, there's a few of the of his essays in this book that are very um, Wallacean, I guess, in that they're heavily footnoted. Um, or heavily referenced up Simba is not one of, Oh no, it is. Never mind. I lied to you right then. I just had to flip to a page. It's half a footnote. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's something that is really amazing about Wallace's work. And I think he does this in his, uh, fiction as well, but he'll use a footnote to sort of nest an idea or a mini thesis or simply an anecdote inside of what he's writing about. And he can loop these in in a really grand scale. Like we're literally talking like a 800 word footnote. Um, he can loop these in in a way that's most of the time works. And I think that's incredible. He sort of has, I always think of like reading a, um, reading an, a Wallace uh, article is sort of like a freeway system or something where it connects to these little side <laughs> roads where you can right. go off and you drive down the bypass, side. Yeah, and, and then back. like, oh, no, 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 we're just going to go yeah, down right. here for a second. I'm going to show yeah. you this. I'm going to pop back up onto the freeway. Hmm. Yeah. And it's really, really, really incredible. I don't really know anybody else who does this. Um, yeah, I think he actually has like a three-page preface that he is basically to the publisher of the article, which I think was for Rolling Stone. Um or this was for the publisher of this exact book where he was just sort of framing the, uh, the Rolling Stone article for the, uh, the publisher. 
And it was essentially, you can delete this, but I want to ex- explain to you why this story is good for the book and recontextualize it as a Rolling Stone article um, beyond just, this is this time I hung out with John McCain for a bunch of weeks. Um, and it's a really wonderful preface. Um, and he says, you know, even at the end of it, look, if you don't agree with anything I'm saying here, you only have to press a button or two to make it all go away. Um, which again is a feeling he has about the work that he's doing that is a metaphor for how people experience um, the political process that he's about to just carve up into a million little pieces. Anyway, I've talked a lot right now, but it's very, very, very good. Yeah, uh, Jake, I think you would like this book. I, yeah, I've, I've been meaning to read it forever, but I haven't. Oh, I hand, slided it. Handing me a copy. <laughs> it was interesting. This is, uh, this is I, I wish I had something interesting to say about this, and I don't. But this. Because I'm horrible, but um, we're, we're going down a good road here. Then, yeah, it so it was so interesting to me to read the the first um, essay in the collection, which as I that that's Big Red Sun, right? yeah, it's that's, the adult that's film the one, adult yeah. video award, it's really good show. Because for years, when I was a, a, a journalist in the video game industry, I attended the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas every year, which annually was held directly adjacent to that exact. That right. Exact he show. mentions that too. Right. He mentions in the article that CES is right next to AVN yeah. for very calculated, well, not very calculated, for very simple reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was very weird to um, be walking around a, near the sort of margins of the two shows where the Venn diagram, not the Venn diagram, but where the borders overlap a bit and you see the crossover kind of mingling. Yeah. The Venn diagram overlap is probably bigger than the actual physical, uh, overlap. Maybe because the, because the adult video one is, it's all professionals as I recall. Um, I mean, no, there's lots of fans. No, you're right. He writes a lot about the fans. He writes a lot about the fans. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but it was, it was always a very surreal thing. I mean, it made everything. Las Vegas is an inherently surreal place. I'm, I'm not a big Las Vegas fan. Um, generally, but, uh, that, that was just the height of surrealism for me was walking around in this place and having someone shout to you about how incredible their new 42 inch, you know, plasma latest TV thing is. And then, and then right next to it, there's just these absurdly got up porn stars, you know, mingling with some dork dude. Right. I mean, it's just like the most horrible kind of self indictment of consumer uh, of of sort of consumer capitalism, you can imagine, but it, it's I don't know. So it was having having witnessed the periphery of that a number of years in a row. I found that essay mm-hmm. particularly interesting. And the thing that's awesome is I think like Wallace, he experiences all these things through his own eyes, but also through the people that he's adjacent to, that he's right next to. So he spends a lot of time piling around with this porn star, or this porn producer named Dick Filth. Yeah, and by the end of it, Filth is both cartoon of the character that you think he is, but also a human in that you've had a couple of little side doors open into who he is as a person. Mm -hmm. And it just shows, I think, I think David Foster Wallace is just one of those people who is a very like absorbent sponge. I think he just saw things in his experiences that went that were very, 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 very narrow details that a lot of people probably miss um, or simply just don't care about mm-hmm. um, or are not uh, attuned 
to wanting to see this. Yeah. I think is a better way of describing it. No, he has a complete unwillingness to sort of stop at the first or even second just layer of perception of a person. Right, which is sort of why I was like, why I wanted to seg that into Tinker Taylor, in that the the density of of fact and then um, synthesis of that information, Mm -hmm. that that cycle of like observe a thing, feel a thing, comment about a thing, connect it to another thing, observe a thing inside of that nest Mm -hmm. and go deeper and deeper is something that Wallace does in a way that's intimidating on its face when you're like wow i wish my brain worked like that but not intimidating as a reader which mm-hmm. i think is awesome it's very accessible he's right. not gonna he's um, impressive as a reader but yeah 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 yeah, yeah. he doesn't he doesn't it's, it's writing that you know is is smarter than you but doesn't act smarter than you and that's yeah. really awesome by the way that reminds me of something i should have said about i really think i gave um spy coming for the cold short shrift by not actually talking in, enough about specifics because i for some reason I didn't have my notes with me and I just kind of forgot a lot of what I wanted to say. But something that comes to mind that I thought was really fascinating about the way Le Carre depicts characters is that it, it's almost the opposite kind of what you're talking about with Wallace where Le Carre, at least in this novel, never gives you, rarely gives you more than you need in any, at any given right. moment. And so characters, even though this is a sort of theoretically close third person book where he sticks to the same perspective character the entire time, um, he's very selective about when he actually chooses to go into that character's um, sort of interior mind. Mm -hmm. And so the character, Alec Lemos, the spy, you know, the titular spy, he, um, he will start acting in ways that as a reader, it is completely unclear whether they are sincere or whether it's part of his uh, cover, or whether it's some weird double cross on a level beyond that. And Le Carre is so, plays it all so straight and so cool. It's very fast. It's, it's unusual um, in a novel where you, you're accustomed to either only seeing characters at the service level if they're not the perspective character, or having a pretty good sense, generally speaking, of motive or intent or understanding um, if it's the perspective character. And Le Carre is so willing to just dispense with those conventions and go as deep as he needs to only at any given moment um, that it it does make you as the reader feel like you're you're sort of part of this weird world. And it also makes it all the, all the more crushing um, in the novel where you do finally understand what's actually going on and you realize that almost none of the characters even understood themselves what they were doing. Whereas you might've assumed as the reader, there's always as a reader kind of at a certain point, you're like, Oh, there's always another layer deeper of this character. There's there. I'm always kind of being played one level more. And then at a certain point you realize, Oh my God, these characters were being played even more than I was. And like, this is just disgusting what's going on. Um, in a way that is, uh, I think quite masterful. Um, and and gets to, to to what is so damning about Lacare's observation of the kind of Cold War escalating espionage um, face off. Anyway, sorry, I, that wasn't really entirely related to what you were talking about, but I it it's reminded okay. me. Of the it reminded you of what you forgot. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I, I do think you definitely go way way deeper into Wallace's head, but there's a hard stop. I think with him. There's sort of the the part. There's I, I see it all the time in his writing where you sort of 
get this hard stop of who he is as a person. Um, and it's in contrast to seeing him talk to somebody like Charlie Rose when you're like, Oh wait, there's like, there's a whole party you don't want to talk about, <laughs> you know? And, um, it's interesting to read the book with that context. So I'd also recommend do that. There's a, um, a series of decent interviews, um, with David Foster Wallace on YouTube, but, uh, the Charlie Rose one is, it's not in- incredibly long or like big on information, but there's a human dynamic between the two of them that I think is definitely worth mm-hmm. experiencing bef- uh, either while before or after or during reading any of his books. Yeah. Let's talk about your book, Jake. Oh man. Cause I like your book a you, lot. You like my book. They're a sort lot. of like, I don't know. Like if we're going to say these are three books to recommend, you can't go wrong with any of them, but they're definitely for different mindsets, yeah. or different moods you're in. So, to few people's surprise who have listened to any of our podcasts, I haven't been reading a lot of books lately. Um, or you didn't playing even a lot need to start with that. You could have just anything. said, you've hardly been alive. You've just been laying in a chamber. <laughs> I've basically been laying in a chamber. I, that's how I describe my <laughs> life, uh, basically laying in a chamber. But, um, I mean, Sean, you actually asked me to bring this book this week. But the book that I wanted to talk about or uh, recommend, or recommend uh is Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency by Douglas Adams, which is... Oh, man. I haven't read that in, like... Oh, man. When was... More than a decade, probably? When was, okay. If you haven't read it in... I know, Chris, it's probably not the sort of style of book that you would read at this point, so it might you might be... That's in, why it needs to be talked about, because it's good. I read it two years ago, or a year and a half ago, and you it, gave it to me. Yeah. And it's, it's a solid, fun, playful, it's intelligent like, book. I loved Douglas Adams' books when I was in, like, elementary school, junior high, like, early teen years. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was, mm-hmm. you know, like, a book which, like, shaped my thinking about what sort of books I like and even, like, sort of just how I self-identified through media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency was always the sort of weird outlier to that because it wasn't in the mainline Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy right. continuity. It was just the weird other detective story that that guy wrote. But um, I reread it, like, probably five years ago and then recommended it, Sean, I recommended it to you, like, two years ago. And it's a it sticks with me more than any other thing by that guy. Like, I actually just... It's... I don't know how much to even talk about it from the basic standpoint. I mean, it's it's by Douglas Adams, who's a British author who's most notably known for just writing sort of funny genre stuff because of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. And he decided at one point that he was going to write a detective story. Um, I think, I don't know, if, I don't know if the contents of Dirk Gently predate the Hitchhiker's Guide or not, but they actually started off as two scripts from like 1960s era Doctor Who hmm. um, or 70s. Um, and then they got turned into this book. It's, I didn't know that. Um, it's it's a detective story sort of in the mold of like just crime fiction stuff I guess except it's a it's sort of it deals with the interconnectedness of things where it's yeah it's sort of very metaphysical as I yeah, remember. Sm- yeah small things that seem completely irrelevant to turn out to be the most relevant thing in the story right. uh, and it's sort of his whole his whole op, like yeah it's it's his deal but yeah. well yeah Dirk gently the 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 titular investigator, uh, his whole, that's, that's his whole shtick, but it ends up, the book ends up, you know, breaking all sorts of rules of time and space over the course of its existence. But, uh, man, I'm trying to quantify what I like about it. And it's really tough. Um, you like its pages. I like its pages. I like the words on it. I mean, it's, (laughs) I actually like it. 
for many of the same reasons that I like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is <laughs> stupid. Interesting. Um, at least on the surface, it's it's a book that you're reading that uh, has words in the English language which you comprehend with your brain. Those are the things that I would say are in common with it in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Wow. You're really just going to play the joke? You're just gonna <laughs> behind that? I'm just having a lot of trouble quantifying what I'm saying because I thought about this a lot this week and then it all just fell out of my brain the moment I had yeah. to start talking about it. Um, that happened to me today. Yeah. I was fine. Yeah, you were I know. You, you were on the <laughs> ball. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Dirk Gently seems ostensibly like a light read when you start reading it, but then it just it stacks and stacks and stacks on itself that just the sort of like audacity of the mystery that's being solved gets so large and so ridiculous that it ends up like it, it structurally holds way better than I would have expected in a way that I really like. And also it, it's really sort of a a flippant goofy, like cheeky British book, but then it occasionally has moments that, that hit on really like the way that art impacts people or the way that like interpretation of things subjective interpretation of things can result in very specific actions and like it's ah it's it's the book's just way more than it seems like it is on its surface like when you gave me the book as i had read some douglas adams um i'd read sort of just that his in his contemporaries whether it's uh pratchett or guyman or whoever Mm -hmm. um so i kind of knew what i was getting into and it's you know it looks like an airport style paperback at least the little copy that you gave me mm-hmm. and so i kind of put on like i had like like i prepared for it like i prepare for a harry potter book which is to say i'm just gonna read it and mm-hmm. just be like it's like going to mcdonald's or something and then i felt like i sat down to my meal and then i was like wait a second it was like i finished like the first little chunk and i was like okay yep that's what i expected and i was like wait wait what there's a second course there's more and then i was like oh there's a little more here and then by the end of it i felt like i'd had this really i felt like i'd gone to mcdonald's for like a six pack of nugs and some uh, and some fries, and I walked out and I'd had like like a, a well crafted and I had like a real meal somehow, uh, and I didn't need to just uh, evacuate my body completely. <laughs> yeah, it's, you could digest. Yeah, there was something to digest. There was a quality to the to the to the chicken nugget meat that was more than I expected. Yeah, it's, it's a hard book for me to. to it was just a real meal. Quantify, but just like. It has stuff in it that is genuinely hilarious. Like it's a book that I I at this point read every three or four years, but there are certain moments in it that just actually make me laugh out loud when I read it. But then at the same time, there are moments in it when characters in the book are just like genuinely moved beyond words by just some pretty very specific but kind of taken for granted chunks of of our culture. And then it also has this really sort of obsessive side to it that is the sort of thing that I like that it it feels like it comes from that sort of 70s era reimagining of of crime stories and of sort of thriller espionage stuff even though it's a ridiculous story about like the past present and future of humanity relative to like extraterrestrial shit it still has that like that just down to the nuanced single bit moment, like just crunched density where every single sentence that you read in the book actually is relevant, even if it seems like it's superfluous or it seems like it's a throwaway remark that someone says. So it requires that you actually are paying attention on multiple levels through the entirety of it. But at the same time, it has like that 
a moment where a guy said like they someone hears a disturbance upstairs in this guy's apartment and he says like he just looks fear stricken and it seems like it's it turns into like a Lovecraftian moment for a second or something where he just is this just thud upstairs fills this guy with complete dread and he says I'm gonna go go upstairs but when I come back I might I might be someone else so no matter you know if I if I say or do anything out of the ordinary you need to tackle me. Just talk, tackle me to the ground and don't let me don't let me get up because who knows what will happen. And then he walks upstairs and it's this super tense moment. He comes down and says, Oh, it's fine, there's a horse in the bathroom. And then he just gets <laughs> tackled to the ground and like beat up. And I mean obviously there's a horse in the bathroom. But uh it it's the stupidest example, but that's that dumb fucking scene cracks yeah. me up every single time that I read it. Or a character who just indiscriminately starts what speaking is, in Beatles what is the lyrics. Hmm? Yeah. What is the inciting incident of the book? I can't what is it like the the, the book opens the in a really sort of disjointed way where it almost like cross cuts between a few different yeah, things. Yeah, like it cross cuts between the that first weird metaphysical just, plane. Yeah. It, ta- it just starts talking about like just a guy trudging around in the muck uh, right. and a light going on and off in a tower and you don't know what it means. And then it cuts to um, just like a, a fictional but just sort of posh, very old British university where everyone's having a dinner. Uh, right. And a guy does a really simple conjuring trick by making a little glass at the table disappear like under his napkin. And then he reveals it by shattering open a broken piece of pottery that a little girl found on a trip to the Mediterranean or something. And the sort of simplicity, simple seeming like, Oh, it's an old man showing off for a little girl. But if you think about it, what he actually did is impossible. It sort of dives and, you know, turns into this weird banana story. Um, I also like this book, and this is the most dorky confession of all about this thing, but I like it because it has, it's, it's, Douglas Adams was a super, super, super Apple computer booster for his entire, like, life, um, and this book, if anyone listens to Idle Thumbs Over Video Game Podcast and knows J.P. LeBreton, this is probably also his favorite thing about this book, but one of the characters and one of the through lines of it is of a Macintosh software developer who's developing for the new color Apple or uh, Macintosh two computer. I remember that. It's really weird, but it, it's it reading it now, the very specific fetishism of little bits of computer technology at that point, which were at, at the time designed to sort of talk about how cutting edge and cool this company is. But also it has a little bit of sort of cynical observational humor about business development software and about sort of just enterprise computer software. Um, it now reading that book now reads the same way that reading like 60s spy thrillers does where people, where it, <laughs> where it like fetishizes the teletype uh, or like uh, right. one use pads and dead drops and all like the look stuff. But instead it's talking about like, I don't think look fetishizes that stuff. Though. That's he, one of the things he, I like, think he, is really he, admirable. He like de fetishizes it, but he, inc- yeah. it, it's included in a, in a really, I guess yeah, it's not, it's not fetishized, but it's, it's all very present and very active inside of the stories. Like his stories function with very specific, real pieces of technology that are used in the trade that they're describing. Mm -hmm. And, but they're of such a specific period that they're just completely irrelevant at this point to anyone's life other than Uh sort of being the elements that these people use to do their jobs. So Mm -hmm. hearing about people who have chained together three Macintosh computers to build this thing that they're selling to large businesses that make their spreadsheet documents display flashier art as to distract from the shitty state that the government or that their work is in. 
like it's it's all just for the purpose of these one note little jokes like one of the people has developed a program called reason um and i think started off as a deductive problem solving thing but they realized that they could invert the formula so you tell it the solution that you want and then it will come up with ways to rationalize it for you (laughs) and uh the way that this company had become successful is by selling it to a major u.s political party for political campaigning which is goofy satire stuff but anyway it's Knowing all the things that it's talking about because I was really obsessed with those as a kid now is just fun. But in- incidental and a waste of five minutes. So thanks for listening to that. <laughs> Jake Rodkin. You kind of encapsulate the whole podcast that way. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. Dirk Gently's the Holistic, Holistic Detective, Detective Agency, Agency by it's, Douglas Adams. God, I left so much on the table about why I like that book. It's Me so, too. It's I did so, the same thing. It's so hard to quantify that goofy book. It's good, though. It is good. Uh. <laughs> like, ah. I want to see how many more noises yeah. we can get out of you. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to this uh, interim version of the Edit Book Club. Jake is having a fucking meltdown. And uh, join us next month when we get into The Sun Also Rises mm-hmm. by Ernest Hugh Hemingway. Followed by Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. What's her middle initial? I haven't a clue. Ernest is not Q. I assumed it was not. I assumed right. you were just having a little bit of fun there. I've only well, ever this read this little, little bit. Ernest Q Hemingway? Ernie? Ernie the Q? The Q stands for quality. Of course. <laughs> yeah, objectively so. I've yeah. only ever read one Hemingway thing, and it was one short story, so I'm really looking forward you to it. You should read this yeah. book. It's I'm very good. I'm looking forward good. to it as well. I've, I've actually really, yeah, I've never read Hemingway as well, which is sort of embarrassing, I suppose. But, um... Well, I'm embarrassed for you. I, you should be. So I'm, I'm embarrassed for you on behalf of me. Wow. Yeah. Anyways, I am also really. Um, it was, it'll have been quite a long time coming, but I am also really looking forward to the Wolf Hall podcast. There's a lot of characters um, in that book. There are, but it's a great book. I'm like 250 pages in. It's fantastic. So, as usual, for any of this stuff, if you've been reading Wolf Hall and you've just been waiting for our episode, but you haven't written us in, send us something at books at idlethumbs.net. Mm-hmm. There's, there's also actually a lot of really excellent discussion about Wolf Hall on the Idle Forums. Yeah. There's a great um, discussion thread about it, which you've, if you've already read it and you don't, you know, and therefore spoilers are not a problem, just there's yeah, some really, by. really excellent discussion going on in there. Um, but the same goes for The Sun Also Rises. We'll put up a thread for it. Um, but also, if you have read it and wanted us to or want to share some of your thoughts with us, or if you're going to read it and want to write in books at idlethumbs.net. Um, yeah. Or you can tweet us at uh, Idle Book, Club. Idle Book, Idle Book Club. Club on Twitter. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for putting up with us in the long delay, but we will get back to regular scheduled podcasting. Yeah. See you in a few weeks. Take care. Right. See you guys.